0: Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program is a recording of a Book Talk presented virtually on February 12th, 2021. Lisa from the Isley Branch Library discusses some of her favorite recent books on food and cooking. I have some of my favorite memoirs here about food, running a restaurant, all of that. So I think that's particularly appropriate right now when so many of us are stuck at home and we're in the kitchen. So even if you're not a cook, I think you'll enjoy some of these selections. The first one I wanted to talk about is called Provence 1970. And it's about MFK Fisher, Julia Child, James Baird, big names in in food, um, and the reinvention of American taste. And it also talks about Simone Beck, who wrote The French Chef, one of the other writers with Julia Child, Um, And a couple other, maybe lesser known names in American food writing and um, food journalism, Judith Jones, and a man named Richard Olney. And in 1970, all of these people ended up in Provence during one summer. Coincidentally, they didn't plan to be there together. They just were. And they were all about to change American food writing, how we cook, how we eat. Um, how food is talked about, how much it's talked about and where, but they didn't know that of course. And Luke Barr is a nephew of MFK Fisher who most people don't remember at all today. Um, But she was an influential writer. She was a gourmet. She was a cook herself. She traveled all over eating, writing about it, talking about it, but her big love was, was France and French cooking. But in this summer, she started to realize that um, we needed an American cuisine. We needed American food. We need and it was something that was worth talking about, you know, American cuisine that was worth worth writing about in and of itself. So she started to consider maybe French cuisine is not the be-all and end all of food. And so when she came back to the United States, they all came back. And of course, Julia Child was known at the time. She was already promoting French cooking, but Um, This prompted some people in the food world to start saying, hey, America can make good food too. But it's just a wonderful book about, it ends up being mostly about MFK Fisher and her life, which is fascinating. She was a unique woman and I'm kind of jealous of her (laughs) after reading this. But it's just, if you're interested in how the food culture, like um, foodie culture came about in America, this is a great book to describe that and it's also just beautiful to read and um, the cover is a facsimile of her uh, diary mfk fisher's diary that her nephew found when he was going through her her stuff um and he was looking for references to help write the book and he found this this journal from this trip and that's how he started the the whole thing off and it's it's really it's a nice escapist food book And then the next one, I I realized after I put this list together unintentionally that I had chosen all American food and which fast, it all really fascinates me. And the next one is by Rick Bragg. He's come out with a book called, so it's um, Rick Bragg, the best cook in the world, tales from my mama's table. And it is just as good as it sounds. It's just, you'll cry and then you'll go break some cornbread. That was my experience of this book. <laughs> and uh, it, it just is so heartwarming. And he just goes through her life and what she went through growing up. And it is you just can't believe the hardships that, you know, if you've read his other books, you know. But just the way that she made everything. She made the best of everything. And life threw a lot at her. But she did what she could and, and just I love his way of, of writing and um, how he describes things. And he's funny. He's poignant. He's just very real. But a lot of Southern writers, quote unquote, he says he didn't want to grow up to be a professional Southerner, but that's what he is. And he but he doesn't have that, that deliberately folksy style you know that people sometimes use it's it's very genuine and if you haven't read his books before this is a good one to start with because it it encapsulates the rest of his his life but his mother he still lives with his mom and uh he she cooks for him (laughs) almost every day and so it's just a loving tribute but it's it's a tough story I mean that she's cooked all of her life, either to make a living or to keep her family alive. So, and it has, talks a lot about Southern foodways. It's, you know, the kind of, not necessarily hillbilly culture because he's from Alabama, but the deep South um, kind of poor white Southern culture working in the fields, you know, just um, running a boarding house. This is cooking for other people this is how his, his family his the women in his family made a living. So it's, but it's just great. And again, you will be hungry. And this is called the best cook in the world tales for my mama's table. Um, but Brenda, he's got I'm a too. lot of books and he's also a, a, a prize winning, award-winning journalist in, you know, s- straight journalism. So he, he writes a lot and he's a really good writer. I have two books that I want to talk about that are kind of, kind of similar but different they're both about legendary savannah georgia cooks which is a place i i intend to visit one of these days i've never been there but i really want to go just because of the books that have been written about it and how famous the food is the first one is this is a real southern cook by dora charles and uh the other one is This is um, Mrs. Wilkes boarding house cookbook and Mrs. Wilkes is a legend in Savannah and I just loved reading this. It really reads like a scrapbook. Um, It is a cookbook but it's there's a lot of stories in it and um, she ran into hard times with her family and like so many women she opened a boarding house in Savannah and she would you know, provide meals. that's part of a boarding house experience, and her meals were so good. Her cooking was so good that she became legendary. And people that lived in her boarding house would start bringing home their friends for for meals, and so she had to start charging them because she couldn't. You know, they weren't paying room and board. So as time went by, she uh, became known far more for her cooking, and started opening up the house every day to feed people. And you can still eat there. You can. Has anyone been there? That's, Um, you can still eat there. You can still stay there. Uh, it's still operating today. Of course she's passed away, but, um, her, the food is still the same food ostensibly that, that she made. They use her recipes, but it's just another story of hard work and just every day getting up and grinding it out and, and make putting food on the table for whoever came through the door with money. And, but she, she just loved what she did and her, her, um, staff was truly a family they they worked together every day side by side in the kitchen she ran the front of the house but she was in the kitchen all the time um, so it's it's really inspiring again you will want I think I want to make fried chicken when I read most of these books but it's it's just charming and it will probably make you want to go to Savannah too the other one I was talking about is uh, Dora Charles and you may not recognize her name, but you will certainly recognize her first employer who was Paula Dean, who ran into a lot of trouble uh, with the way that she treated her kitchen staff. And uh, Dora and Paula have a very complicated relationship. they they started out together, you know, they from the very day one, they were together. And Dora was Paula's main, uh, lieutenant in the kitchen. She ran the kitchen. Dor, uh, Doris' family came to work with her. And that's why it was really hard for her to leave. There were times where she realized she was being exploited. She realized that she was being not paid enough and that that Paula was out, you know, presenting herself as the face of this business, but never mentioning the people in the kitchen who who made it possible. And it, it's kind of, it's a wonderful book and it's so inspirational. She talks about her family and how they you know, also had to work really hard and just food and family and love, but also hard work. And, you know, her feeling of betrayal that she did not see the financial remuneration for all of her hard work. And, but she has a lot of good things to say about Paula. She also, you know, has things that she can't really say because she has a non-disclosure agreement, but she does say enough. (laughs) You, you, you know, you, she talks about what is publicly known and how there were times in the early, you know, in the 80s, when the restaurant was really getting off the ground, um, she would ask some of the cooks, the African, the Black cooks, if they would dress up as Aunt Jemima, you know, and make waffles in the, in the dining room, and she wanted her servers to wear, you know, plantation-style garb, which was shockingly pretty common at the time in Savannah, but um, it's, so tone deaf in the way that she you know just didn't occur to her that this was offensive so it's it's a little hard to read at times because it's just so you just feel so bad for for dora but she definitely has triumphed and she's a known you know celebrity in her own right now and she got this cookbook published and she's appearing places so i it is really inspiring and also again it will make you very hungry but those are two different sides of the Savannah food experience, kind of the Southern food experience. And I have another one that um, called The Cooking Gene. This is by Michael Twitty. Have any of you heard of him? Um, He's been interviewed a lot lately. He, and this came out about three years ago now, but he is a culinary historian. He's a food historian and he specializes in Southern food ways. And his ancestors, he's traced his ancestry back to the 1700s, and uh, he is of, of mixed ancestry. And uh, he's traced back his African roots. He he knows his history, the history of his family. He fell in love with cooking. He fell in love with with food very early because in his family he has many great cooks, and they just they taught him to cook. He demanded to be taught to cook, and when he was six years old. And so the women in his family and the men in his family are great cooks too. And so they started to teach him and he said, it wasn't, you know, he'll tell it in the story. It wasn't always a gentle process. He had women in his family and the men too, who were, they didn't use measuring, you know, like a lot of good cooks, you don't use a measuring cup, you just guess, but they use their hands to measure things out very precisely. So they would hold his hand in a certain, you know, a certain way and be really kind of rough with them and say, no, you have to get it just right. And that's how they learned how to measure, but he became, uh, you know, a very well-educated uh, credentialed expert in a lot of different forms of food history. But at first, when he was first starting out, he was just a really you know, passionate amateur and he started, he began doing demonstrations at historic sites on, sla- on uh, slave, on slave, food waste and on plantation cooking in the slave quarters so it is just fascinating this book is really really interesting there's a lot in it he has an interesting writing style it is a little more stream of consciousness and at first it threw me a little bit but once i got used to it i i find it very compelling and i got a lot out of it so i haven't actually haven't finished the whole thing but it's really great and he has a, a a website That has been named one of the the top food historical web, historical food websites of all time. So he's, this guy is seriously knowledgeable and tells a great story. Um, And again, it's called The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South by Michael Twitty. And it will take you on a great journey that goes very far back in time all the way up to today. He's, he's definitely worth reading just even if you don't care a thing about food history (laughs) he's a great storyteller he's also jewish oh does he have jewish ancestry yeah oh that's right so i I wondered about that because i think one of the pictures he's either has a recipe for a traditional jewish food or yeah i wondered about that i did see that okay and you can he has um ted talks too that are really good and then this is the one that i just it's called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, and it is about uh, all the different African-American, because it's African-American History Month, so I I kind of threw these in anyway, and then I realized, oh, I have a theme within a theme. But this is all about the different um, Black kitchen staff that have served the president and their roles and how they've changed over the years, and. Just gives you a great if you love presidential history, which which is my kind of my thing. um, This just gives you a really backstage, intimate view into what it was like to be in the kitchen of the various White Houses over the years, the various presidential residences over the years, and how the roles of the people in those kitchens changed, and how much power the kitchens, the White House steward had. The White House, the head of the White House kitchens was a very important position. And there were some really legendary figures that held the position over the years. And they didn't just run the kitchen. The steward was not just responsible for cooking or buying provisions for the kitchens. They were responsible for everything that happened uh, within the house itself, making sure all the silverware was still there. And at the end of the day, and, and, you know, of course, choosing wine and hiring, firing, supervising the employees, the uniforms, making sure that they were, uh, they had enough of them. They were clean. They were, it was just everything. It was a very complicated position. And it it wasn't easy to find people that would be good at that, that had all those skills. And so when, when a person was hired to do that job, it was usually male until much later. Um, they they stayed there because the the presidents would just kind of keep that person in the job because you know if you found someone that was good at it, you wanted to retain them, and it was a, a interesting combination of skills. One of the um, mo- the longest running stewards was and I, his last name is Pinkney and I always forget his first name. For some reason i don't know why that i'm bad with names um but he served for a long time and he was most notably um theodore roosevelt steward when an, oh henry henry pinkney i don't know why i always block that but there's a famous story about him that in addition to being great with provisioning serving you know supervising the servants doing the menus everything he was a diplomat. He was known for you had to be very diplomatic, of course, because you're dealing with egos everywhere and important, you know, important people. So every year, the the White House would be sent turkeys um, from all over the world for Thanksgiving and uh, all of the country. And these people wanted all wanted their turkey to be the Thanksgiving turkey, the official Thanksgiving turkey. And he, uh, Henry Pinckney. Had a, came up with this idea of dealing with this, because they didn't want to offend anyone. They didn't want to just choose, you know, one turkey. They had an official turkey razor, but that didn't satisfy everyone. So he came up with the idea of cooking everyone's turkey and chopping up the meat from the turkeys and putting them in a and in attract this beautiful serving dish. And that's what was served. And so they could truly say to everyone, they could write a thank you note saying, thank you so much, we served your turkey for Thanksgiving. So he was extremely deft at handling, I guess you would say he was a, like a press agent at the time when that that role didn't really exist. So he did all, they did all kinds of things, but this goes all the way up to the modern times and it is it has lots of recipes. It's mostly prose. Uh, history but there's recipes and just all kinds it's so good this is the book I'm I'm actually rereading right now so I don't know if any of you have ever wanted to open a restaurant but I think I've always had this fantasy of opening a restaurant until I had some friends that opened and thought no (laughs) I don't think I ever want to work that hard but it's if you would like to read about it this is a book called the Lancy and it's called a man, a woman, a restaurant, a marriage by Molly Weisenberg. And it's, it's just, it's charming. And it's, it's a beautiful story. It reads really fast. It's, she's a good writer. It's, it's quick. She and her husband, her husband is one of those very talented people that has a hard time figuring out what they're going to do. They just, he can do so many things well that he starts out as a dancer Then he becomes a a musician, a composer. He wants to be a composer and he's talented at both of these things. Um, But he injures himself dancing and has to move into something else. So he moves into contemporary composition. Uh, Then he decides that's not it either. And he falls in love with, when I say falls in love he becomes obsessed with pizza, with making the best pizza, finding the best pizza. Um, he grows up in, in New York and New, and New Jersey. And so he's an expert in Eastern East Coast style pizza. And they decide to open their own pizza restaurant. And he, uh, you know, he's like, this will be, we can do this. you know. And, and then his, his original backers kind of back out, everything kind of falls apart. And he decides he, he isn't going to, to do this. And she talks him into continuing and it, it wreaks havoc on their lives. It is it is a harrowing tale, um, but it's also, it's funny. It's very personal. Again, I actually went and bought some pizza after reading it, so, and I, I enjoy, I do enjoy tinkering with my pizza dough recipe. And um, I don't make them as often as I used to because I, now I have an empty nest and very empty. So I can't eat, I can eat a whole one. So I don't make them as often as I used to, but I, I, um, really empathize with their search for that. Just that right ratio between, have you you ever made sauerkraut pizza? You know, I haven't, I've had it. I have not made it. Um, I, I appreciate a good sauerkraut. I'm very German. So (laughs) I, I, I honor that I've had Reuben pizza, which is, good and has sauerkraut on it I like pineapple on my pizza I don't care who knows it I like a Hawaiian <laughs> pizza very controversial I know but uh, I yeah I've had just about every kind of pizza imaginable but I haven't had sour. well yes I have had but I haven't done it myself the Delancey a man a woman a restaurant a marriage it's a it's a very good book and if you've ever thought you might like to own a restaurant <laughs> You might think twice after you read that book. And then this one, speaking of owning a restaurant, this is called The Truck Food Cookbook. And I've been to other towns. I don't know about all of you. Has anyone eaten from some really memorable food trucks, places you've visited? I really love them. And I've been to other towns where they're they're very evident. They're, they're particularly popular in places, let's face it, that have better climates. If you live in a place where it's cold a lot of the year, it's it's a challenge. <laughs> and we don't have, Lincoln doesn't have ordinances that are very conducive to food trucks, which is a problem in a lot of cities. They, they're viewed as unfair competition to brick and mortar restaurants, etc. So there's there's a lot of politics around food trucks. But in the cities where they're allowed and encouraged, you can get some great food. I've I've eaten at a couple in Raleigh that were fabulous and you know, different, lots of different places, in California and Texas, et cetera. But this book is is so fun to read. And again, you if you ever thought, gee, I wonder what it's like to run a food truck, <laughs> this this will tell you. And it goes just all over the country. But spotlighting places where the food truck culture is really strong, like out in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, um, Chicago, which you know those people are very brave, <laughs> to be out on the street in lake effect snow. There's Minneapolis, um, Tucson. There's he goes all over and interviews. Philadelphia has, of course, a lot of it is cheese steaks. But he just talks to the owners of these trucks and how did you get started? What, what kind of truck do you have? And they give the recipes. And I just love reading, flipping through this because it's like a vacation. I miss traveling so much right now. And I'm sure a lot of you do too. So for me, this book, it combines two of my favorite uh, subjects, <laughs> travel and, and street food and it makes me, it made me a little sad, but it also is inspiring, and you could definitely try the recipes in this book. Some of the books I've looked at today, I've read because I don't think I can make anything in them, but I just, I'm amazed at the creativity of the cooks, but this one, you can definitely make this food, and it's just fun to read, Like there's lots of hot dog and taco recipes, but there's some surprising things too. Um, There's people that do a lot with, you know, there's salads that they make portable and there's uh, lots of hamburgers, of course, but they also have great recipes for condiments, different sauces. And I like to experiment with those. So it's fun if you are missing traveling and trying new things, trying new food, it's Trip, it's truck food cookbook so i've looked through it many times i might buy that one i'm definitely buying the uh dora charles cookbook for the the woman that worked with paula dean i'm buying this it has so many great recipes in it and i think it would make a great gift too then here's a, a name that a lot of people are familiar with this is ruth reichel and she's such a famous food writer. Has anyone read anything by her? Yeah, she's isn't she? She's just such a good writer. Um, and she, of course, was famously the editor in chief of Gourmet magazine for ten years until they folded. And so she has a couple of books out current that are her you know fairly latest books. One came out in 2015 one in 2019, I think she has another one since then, but they're both about her experience of gourmet magazine, just ceasing publication and her finding herself out of a job, out of a a vocation and how that, how she got through that. And the first, the one I just showed you is called my kitchen year, uh, 136 recipes that saved my life. And it's about her. She and her husband had bought a house in the Hudson Valley, Hudson River Valley, out in the country, and it was pretty primitive. (laughs) They didn't, they had to have a backup generator and, you know, it's, we're familiar with that here, but uh, it was, it was not always easy to live there. And they thought, she thought, well, you know, I have my job, I have my life as planned out, and this happened to her. So it's just how she came back from that. And musings on food journalism in the country you know in America right now in the world right now and how the how the internet changed everything and at times I found myself thinking I think one of, and then the other one is called save the plums and that's just the pros that's just a nothing but I mean there's there's she talks a lot about food in it too she can't help it that's what she does but uh, there's really no recipes in this one this is just really about the story of how this magazine you know that was the mag, the food magazine in in american food journalism just one day closed but i i find it interesting and and i'm sure this was unintentional by her but you know as i was reading it i kept thinking it, it how did you think that this would keep going you know when 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 she, you know they just were really really not seeing what was happening in, in what, how trends were going in all of publishing. And, you know, you think you wonder how did you not see this coming, but you can see when you read these books, they just didn't, they were just doing their thing and they didn't have a lot of hand in the actual publishing, but also I think it was wishful. A lot of it was wishful thinking because they kept trying new things and you and know, they were just victims of, changing times but it, it makes you sad because they all loved what they did so much but it's interesting It, it so it's not just about food or food journalism or food writing but it's it's just about how everything changed in the way we receive information but it also has to do with food so and she's such a good writer i i would read just about anything she she writes she's funny um I think she's pretty honest about herself and she's got a good sense of irony. My favorite book of hers is called, um, what is it? Sweeter tender at the bone, which is just about how she grew up with a mother who frequently poisoned people with her food. (laughs) And, uh, she was, you know, Ruth was just mortified by her mother's cooking, and her mother loved to cook, but she was um, just inherently a cheapskate, you know, which I am totally, like, I'm frugal, but I don't think I would go this far, so she would have these big parties and cater them herself, but instead of, you know, if she had a chance to buy food at a discount, she would do that, even if it was outdated, Maybe not fresh, maybe not safe. You know, so she was always cooking with these outdated ingredients and nearly killing her guests. And there were many times where she would serve something, and at least some of the people she was serving would would get sick. So, and but it doesn't sound like it would be funny, but it she makes it funny. And I wrote, yeah, re, you could you could read anything she writes, and it's worth a look. We're gonna move to a different part of the country with. It's called Burnt Toast Makes You Sing Good, a memoir of food and love from an American Midwest family. So I have a couple of books on more Midwestern food ways that are more familiar to those of us from this part of the country. And this is by Kathleen Flynn. And she comes from two really big Midwestern families. Um, Her maternal relatives are Swedish and her paternal family is Irish, and so it's it's just all about how food is all around in her family. Not just cooking uh, for her mother, cooking for for their family, but many of her uncles and aunts and other relatives have been involved, get involved in the food business. And her family, when they're very young, her parents open a pizza restaurant. There's all kinds of restaurateurs in the family. Some of them are more successful than others, but it's just food is a huge part of their lives. And I love this book. It's you, I found myself really crying sometimes when I was reading it, just getting teary eyed because of it reminded me so much, my own family and you just root for them because they, they're trying to find as they find their identity as a family and what do we do? And how do we keep food on the table, but her mother, um, they moved to a farm near where they grew up, and it's, uh, they have four kids in her her own family, and they're surrounded by cousins and aunts and uncles, this huge family, and it's just about her mother, you know, grow, putting in a huge garden, they have all these fruit trees, real familiar to a lot of us who grew up here, and watching our family make ends meet from what they could grow and what their family around them could provide and grow and produce and it's just how they weather good times and bad and it's just a sweet memoir and again there are recipes and I haven't tried any of the recipes in this book but I would like to they're very familiar but this is just this may be something that you know hits home more than the ones from other parts of the country but it's called Burnt Toast Makes You sing Good by Kathleen Flynn. I laughed. I cried. I am. I was hungry. That's, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> That's what I'd say for a lot of these books. And I um I've actually been doing a lot of cooking. I'm a I love to bake. I'm a baker and I like to cook too. And I, I do a lot of it, but baking is my, my love. And so I did my very first very slow rise bread, the no-need method that you you let it rise for like 12 to 18 hours, and then you make it in the oven in a Dutch oven. So the oven within an oven method. And I've always wanted to try it. So I I finally did a couple of weeks ago and it came out great. So now I'm on my bread baking kick and I'm gonna work with some sourdough this weekend. So <laughs> this is called relish, and it is a graphic novel by Lucy Nicely. Has anyone read anything by her? She's very prolific. She's my favorite graphic novelist. So if you've never read a graphic novel before, I highly recommend hers. It's subtitled My Life in the Kitchen. And Lucy grew up in a family of professional cooks, caterers, uh, they restaurant owners. Her, a lot of her family worked in gourmet food shops back East when they were first becoming popular her mother was a cheesemonger that's how she worked her way through college and lucy also did that during college and they worked in gourmet cheese shops or food food shops that sh- sold high end cheese so it is just wonderful it's it's a graphic novel and so it's you know it's like a comic book format but she is a great writer and i i just love her she's she's very self-deprecating she's had a huge life experience for someone. So she's still very young and she's, but she's lived all over the world. She's traveled. Her family is fascinating. Her mother eventually ends up living um, in upstate New York on a farm. It's kind of a theme in these books. So she grows up around farm to table food, artisan foods before that's really even a thing. That's just the way she grows up with people who are producing fresh food, really starting the locavore movement and that's kind of normal for her. So I just love her how she draws, how she talks about her life. So any any of her books are great, but she she eventually goes to art school and but she's always involved in food all the way through that. So it's called Relish My Life in the Kitchen by Lucy Nicely. I've gotten to hear her speak a couple of times. And she's really inspirational to me. I wish she was my friend, so we could cook together. I wish I knew her, so we could cook together. And then I have two really big books here that are um, that are you will need more than one day to get through these. This is called A Place at the Table*, <laughs> and it is a. It, this is a really popular book. It's gotten big reviews it is and it is there's a lot in here it takes a long time to get through and it's called new it's subtitled new american recipes from the nation's top foreign-born chefs and this is one of those books i was talking about where i don't know if i'm going to make any of the things in this book There some of them i i could manage but the whole point is just that it's so fun to read and each one of these chefs there's a lot of stuff in here i could i could definitely cook but i have more fun reading about how the recipes were developed what the cuisine is where they're from the chefs stories they're from all over the world and it's just again it's so inspirational how they got here how they reached their career as a professional as a food professional how they developed these recipes there's just, it is so much fun and it's just pretty. It's a beautiful book. And again, it will make you want to pick up the phone and order some food on DoorDash maybe, which I did. But if you, if you are adventurous or you just like to read about people that are kind of up and coming in food or who can cook things that you've never heard of, which a lot of these things I've, I'm pretty food savvy and adventurous and I have not heard of a lot of these ingredients some of them I definitely have um but it's it's just a fun read and make again if you have a an adventurous cook in your family or a traveler who likes to eat this is a terrific gift book a place at the table it's edited by there's several people involved in it um Marcus Samuelson is involved in it. I think he's involved in almost every food, <laughs> every food endeavor in, in America right now. But it was edited by Rick Kinsel and Gabrielle Langholtz. But if you just want to read about something exotic or you're looking for a really good gift book. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, I, love the, I love doing these, these are fun. <laughs> the time is 11.55, <laughs> so it's time for lunch. Perfect. <laughs> we hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. You can find a wide selection of our podcasts, of book talks and other programs at slash category podcasts